So to get to the bottom of my sermon, when I started preparing for this earlier this week, obviously my first step was to seek out the theological and doctrinal authorities on the subject of church and Sunday gathering. I asked a couple kids in my community group, <laughs> why do you go to church? Awesome answers. How would you answer that question, by the way? Why do you go to church? The first kid I asked said, well, we go to church to sing about God. I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. The next kid said, why well, I go to church to worship God. And I said, yeah. That's also like a really, really good answer. That's exactly right. And then I asked a, a, a third kid, and I loved her answer. I said, hey, why, why do you go to church on Sunday mornings? And she paused. She was very thoughtful, right? Really thoughtful. I could tell she was praying for it. Maybe she got into the third heavens, really chewing on it. And I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. This is going to be my answer for the Sunday morning sermon. I know it. I know that she's going to say, well, pastor, um, an appropriate and biblical ecclesiology teaches that when God's people gather together under the authority of God's word and God's sacraments, then that creates a habitation for the unique covenantal presence of God. I was like, she's going to say it. And she pauses and she thinks really hard. And instead she says, because my parents can't leave me home alone. <laughs> the theological authorities on ecclesiology, kids, right? But does anything special happen when we gather together? Anything at all? Does something special happen on Sunday morning when Christians gather together to worship God? Anything. Or could Charles Darwin come to our Sunday gathering, sit through it, and process it strictly through an evolutionary grid, strictly through a materialistic grid, and come to the same conclusions as us? Could he? That's a great question to ask yourself. Could, if an atheist were to sit in our Sunday gathering and experience it with us, would she experience everything that you experience? Would she think the same thoughts that you think? Would he come to the same conclusions as you? Would he hear the same things as you? Do you experience our Sunday gatherings as just a materialistic, measurable thing? Or does something special happen? Now, to get to the bottom of that question, I want to keep asking that question because I, I think it's important if we don't want to waste our Sundays together. I think it's important. To get to the bottom of that question, there's this famous parable about three stonemasons in a small town who are building a cathedral. And so here's how the parable goes. There's a visitor who comes to town, and as he strolls through town, he sees these three stonemasons. But this is a visitor, so he doesn't know what they're building. And so he walks up to each of the individual stonemasons, and he asks them, what are you doing? Well, stonemason number one says, well, I'm doing my job. Is that right or wrong? That's true. That's true, right? But he goes on to the second stonemason. He asks him the same question. What are you doing? And he gives a different answer. He says, well, well I'm cutting and, and shaping these stones into this specific and right shape that they need to be in. Again, is that true or false? That's, that's true. That's what the stonemason is doing, but it's a different answer. 
And so the visitor goes on to the third stonemason, and he asks the third stonemason, what are you doing? And the third stonemason, he's gripped by this vision of his end goal. He knows what's being built. So he puts his stone down, steps back from it, and says, I'm building a temple for the glory of God. Now, who's right? All of them. But what vision is the most beautiful? I'm building a temple for the glory of God. So when you gather together with us on Sundays, what are you doing? Are you Christian number one? I'm just trying to get my kids to church on Sunday. Are you Christian number two? Well, I'm just doing what good Christians do. They go to church on Sunday. I mean, maybe. My goal is to get us to a place, church, where on Sunday mornings when we gather together and do this, where we are Christian number three. We don't just think, I'm just trying to get my kids to church, or we don't just think, ah, this is just what I'm supposed to do. But Christian number three says, I'm building a temple for the glory of God. It's a fight to see church that way, right? It's a fight, but I'm convinced that the fight to engage meaningfully on Sunday mornings is essentially the fight to look past what is visible, to look past what is unseen, to look past what is measurable, to look past what is seen, and to see what is unseen behind all of it, right? To look past the preacher, to look past the musician, to look past the sermon slides, and to, and to see behind it all the hands of God building for himself a temple for his own glory. You're going to see this in our text this morning. I know you're going to see it. So let's stand for the reading of God's word together. So Paul in Ephesians 2 is writing this early church, and in verse 11 he says, I like how he starts it, remember, Remember, church, remember, frontier, remember, Gentiles, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having zero hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances so that... He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So... What's the point of all this? So 
you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Wow. Can I have a seat? So I pray that none of you feel or experience what I'm about to describe to you, but I think that a lot of you guys do. There are tons of barriers to you experiencing life in Sunday gatherings. I don't know what those barriers are for you. Maybe right now is a great time to ask yourself, what are the barriers that I experience that keep me from experiencing life in Sunday gatherings? I don't know you. But, but maybe, maybe you might struggle to engage on Sunday mornings because you wish the seats were more comfortable. Maybe you struggle to engage because you wish the preachers were older. Maybe you struggle to engage because the parking is difficult in downtown Des Moines. It's difficult, isn't it? Maybe you struggle because your arms are full with kids or maybe you struggle because of some deep-rooted experience growing up. Maybe you sat alone in the lunchroom at school and now you have permanent anxiety in social situations. What I'm saying is that there are 100, maybe even 1,000 reasons why you would come to one of our Sunday gatherings and think, really? This is it? This is a big piece of your strategy? This is so unimpressive. And if that's you, let's roll up our sleeves and let's get to work. We got work to do, okay? So at this point in the letter in Ephesians that we just read, here's what's going on, okay? Paul, he's primarily writing for the Gentiles who are gathering in this church in Ephesus that's made up also of Jews. So here's the thing about Gentiles in the first century. They have far more barriers than you and I ever could to experiencing life at a Sunday gathering. Part of this is because of, well, most of this is because of their, their rough and, and kind of confusing history with the people of Israel and the people of God. It's kind of a messy history. So if you were a first century Gentile and you were gathering together with the church, you would constantly be dominated by insecurity with deep questions like, what could I possibly bring to this church? What could I possibly offer this church? Man, the Jewish people, they grew up with the scriptures. They have all the Bible knowledge. They're the Bible kids. They're the Iwanis kids. I don't even know the Bible at all. I'm a Gentile. You would think, I didn't grow up with prophets and, and priests like, like, a, like the Israelites did. I've never even heard a sermon before. What the heck do I bring to this local church gathering? I don't know where I fit in. And I think the Apostle Paul at verse 11 is saying, hey, bro, I'm glad you said that because I've got something that I want to say to you. So here's what Paul does. He smothers them with a couple of different visuals of who they were before they met Christ Jesus in verses 11 through 18. Did you catch that? Those first seven verses, we're going to 
120 miles an hour. We're going to fly by. Here's what Paul is doing, employing a bunch of different visuals for the Gentiles. First, he employs the visual of ethnicity. He says, you were foreigners. That's what he says in the text. As if to say, yo, you didn't speak the language of God. Um, you didn't practice the customs of God. You were outside of it. Then he employs the visual of geography. He says, you were far off. That's what he says in the text. As if to indicate, hey, remember when you were not even on the religious map? Then he employs the visual of architecture. He says, there was a dividing wall of hostility between you and God and you and God's people. You were literally locked out. And what Paul does in those seven verses is he uses all these different visuals essentially to say, Jesus changed that. He changed all of that. Gentile believer, new believer, don't you remember the cross? The cross has changed all of that. The cross has made you worthy. The cross has made you righteous. The cross has forgiven you. What do you mean, what place do I have in a local church? What do you mean, what do you contribute to a local church? Do you remember the cross? But I think Paul probably at least feels a little bit tempted to cave in to the insecurity of the Gentiles, right? Maybe he feels pressured to say, you know what, guys? I know that gathering together with other Jewish believers is like super difficult, but it's not that big of a deal. Right? Maybe he says something like that. Or maybe Paul goes on to say, you know what? Honestly, you guys just kind of keep doing you. You guys just keep on doing your thing. Because the Sunday gathering, when, when Christians come together, honestly, it's just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. It's just a bunch of empty ritual. That's really all it is. That's what Paul says, right? Wrong. Dead. Wrong. Look closely with me at verses 19 through 21. Fellas, I think we'll have this up on the screen. Paul goes on to say, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. First question, what? What's Paul talking about, man? What is Paul talking about? There's, Paul uses all this language about prophets and apostles. Did you guys see that? All this confusing language about cornerstones and foundations and building structures. What in the world is Paul talking about? What's going on here? Well, here's the gist. Paul is saying God is building something in the world. God is at work in the world. He's building something. And if you want to find what God is building Here's how to look for it. Look for the cornerstone, the most important piece that the foundation is built on and around. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So look for somewhere. Is there anywhere in the world, early church, is there any place in the world where Jesus Christ is consistently proclaimed, consistently taught about, where Jesus Christ is sung about, where Jesus Christ is prayed with, where Jesus Christ is confessed to on a regular basis? Do you guys know a place like that? You're in it. And so Paul says, you know what? And once you find the cornerstone, look for the foundation, particularly the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So again, is there any place in the world 
anywhere in the world where the New Testament prophets and their teachings, the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures are consistently taught and obeyed. Do you guys know a place like that? Paul says that's what God is at work doing. That's what God is building. So like if you're, if you're a reader with half a brain right now, you're thinking, well, that sounds pretty good. God's building something in the world? I want to join him. How do I get involved with this great work? How do I build? I'll do, I'll do anything. If you're a Gentile, you're thinking that, man. Like, I'll go, to, I'll go to Ace Hardware. I'll pick up the building materials. What do, we, what do we need? What are we building with? What are we building with? Straw? I'll grab some straw. We building with bricks? I'll grab some bricks. We, we building with concrete? I'll grab some concrete. What are we building with? Because I, I want to be part of it. And what Paul says next, the crown jewel of this text, Verse 22, must have dropped their jaw. Bro, we're not using brick. Verse 22, let's look at it carefully. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Get it? Paul is saying, Gentile. You Gentile, with all of your insecurities, do you know that you are the building material? Do you know that you're what God is building his temple, household, and church with? And did you know that God is building you together with other Christians to be a temple for his presence, for his presence? Now, theologians in the room, if you're a theologian, you're probably thinking right now, God's presence. Okay, what's my category for God's presence? Well, I know that God is omnipresent, present everywhere all the time. And if you think that, the answer is yes, you're right. God is omnipresent. And yes, he is the God who is present with individuals who read their Bibles at home. And yes, he is the God who is present with atheists who bar hop on Friday nights. And yes, he is the God who is present with the blades of grass that gather together in the forest, but not in the same way that God is present with his church when it gathers together. Illustration. When a pastor sits down with you at a coffee shop, he is present with you. But when a pastor leaves that coffee shop and goes home after work to spend time with his wife, he is present with her. Is this pastor present with both people in the same ways? No, or at least he better not be, right? So theologians distinguish this difference by referring to God's omnipresence or his common presence and God's manifest presence or his covenantal presence with his bride. See, the Gentiles, they, they've always had the omnipresence of God. They've always had the common presence of God. They've never been outside of God's sight, outside of God's earshot. They've always had the common presence of God. But right here, okay, right here in this text, Paul's offering the Gentiles something special, something they never thought they would have access to. God's manifest presence, his covenantal presence as a husband with a bride. And so here's the part, if you're a first century Gentile, here's the part in verse 22. This is the part of the letter where the light bulb goes off. 
If you're a Gentile believer with all of your insecurities, this is the point where you say, oh, what? Who cares what I have to offer a local church? Who cares what I bring to the table? If I gather together with the Jewish believers, if I gather together with the other believers, God will be present. I'm going for that. I don't care what my insecurities are. I don't care how well I fit in. I want that. I want the presence of God. And bro, once you get that, as a follower of Jesus in the year 2018, the New Testament teachings on gathering together explode for you. Acts 20, on the first day of the week, Sunday, we gathered together to break bread. Hebrews 10, do not neglect to meet together. 1 Corinthians 11, 17, when you come together. 1 Corinthians 11, 20, when you come together. 1 Corinthians 14, 23, when the whole church comes together. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together. What does the church do? It gathers together. And so the church is not a building. The church is not a street address. The church is not a mailing address. The church is not a collection of bricks. The church is not at its root a nonprofit. The church is not a 501c3. Listen carefully. The church is God's people gathered together in God's presence. So the church is also not an individual reading their Bible alone, even though that's beautiful. But the church is not an individual praying in the woods, though that's beautiful. And the church is not an individual sharing her faith at Starbucks, though that's beautiful. The church is God's people gathered together in God's presence. So why gather together? Because the cumulative effect that years of worshiping with God's people together will impact you in a way that is eternally immeasurable. Why gather together? Because in a world filled with online Christianity, moving your physical body to a physical space with physical Christians is a countercultural display of the gospel. Why gather together? Because our lives are filled with condemning news reports and shallow internet surfing, and our lives need depth. Why gather together? Because God commands it. Why gather together? Because God enjoys it. Why gather together? Because when God's people gather together, God is building a temple. Why gather together? Because when God's people gather together, God's glory is present. Why gather together? Kent Young, one of our pastoral candidates, said it this way last Sunday, and I can't say it any better. Because the church is worse off without you. We need you. We really need you to gather together with us on Sundays. Um, our, our sending church in Cedar Falls and Cedar Rapids, when they, when they uh, describe the, the strategy of a Sunday gathering, I love the language that they use to describe it. They say, Sunday gathering is all hands on deck. Isn't that a great phrase? All hands on deck. So I think part of the reason why I really like that phrase is because it reminds me of rolling up wrestling mats together. And if you're keeping count, this is my second, you're laughing at me right now, bro. This is my second Sunday in a row uh, using a wrestling analogy. So for the next couple months, I, I promise not to reference wrestling. I promise. Okay, probably. <laughs> 
But the thing about a wrestling mat is that these square wrestling mats, if you've ever seen a, a wrestling meet, they're just these like big single chunks of disgusting foam that wrestlers wrestle on top of. Without it, you don't have wrestling. You need the mat, but it's this, this chunk of foam that, that absorbs all of the sweat of the wrestling match. You know? And even saying that, I feel like you can smell it. Can you smell it? It's just disgusting, right? It's hard work, these wrestling mats. And whenever the wrestling meet is over, uh, it always, always, always takes the entire team. They get so heavy. It takes the whole team to roll those wrestling mats up, pick it up, and then transport it to the wrestling room, right? And so we always roll it up, and we kind of like stick our arms underneath it and, and grab onto the hands of the person across from us, and we grunt it up. And it was just like, just try to not put your face on it. You know, it was just... It was tough work, but it was all hands on deck. If a single person broke that grip, if a single person let go of that corner, this huge wrestling mat hit the gym floor and unrolled, and it was all for a loss. And what I'm saying is that if we're not all hands on deck on Sunday mornings, this entire thing that we're doing, it just unrolls. It does. The entire thing on rolls. It's all hands on deck. Now, I want to take a minute to be specific, okay? Because if you're listening to the sermon right now, what you're thinking is, okay, what's it look like for me to be involved? I want to be specific, and I want to be clear, and I want to be helpful. So I'm going to give you three non-optional roles you play on Sundays, and one optional role you can play on Sundays. So if you're a note taker, dude, this is your time to shine, okay? If you're a note taker, this is your moment. Grab your pen. Um, Non-optional role number one. We need you to view yourself as part of our preaching ministry. Think of it this way. Preaching is not just the responsibility of the preacher. It's the responsibility of the church. To say it another way, guys, our preachers need you on Sunday mornings. We need you really, really bad. Like while we're preaching. We need your prayers while we preach. We need your amens. Amen? Amen. We need your loud shouts, right? We need your hallelujahs. We need your participation. We need your imagination. We need your joy, right? We need your minds. We need you to stick with us. If you're not praying for us while we're preaching, it just unrolls. Preaching is all hands on deck. I'm not doing this for you. We're doing this together. And there's a huge difference. All hands on deck. Non-optional role number two. We need you to view yourself as part of our singing ministry. Um, Nick did a great job of unpacking that already. He said, part of the reason we gather together isn't just to sing worship to God, although that's definitely true, but it's to sing worship to one another. In fact, this is the way the Apostle Paul says it later on in the book of Ephesians. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So when Paul thinks about Gentiles and Jews and the church gathering together, he thinks about people singing to one another. Again, singing is all hands on deck. Non-optional role number three. If you're a Christian, we need you to view yourself as part of our communion time, as an important part of our communion time. So practically, what this can look like is Fellas, if you are married, if you have a wife, lead her in our practice of communion. Before we take communion together, take a moment to hold her hand, 
Take a moment to put your arm around her. This isn't quiet time. Pray with her. Encourage her. Share with one another what God is doing in your lives before you take communion. That's important. Or maybe you're a parent out there. If you have children, lead them. Explain to them, hey, here's why mom and dad are eating this cracker and this grape juice. Do that on a weekly basis. Say, this is why mom and dad get excited about the grape juice and the cracker. What I'm saying is we want you to see yourself at communion as all hands on deck. And those are our three non-optional roles. Let me give you an optional role. Consider signing up as a volunteer for a Sunday team. Andrew is going to mention this in the announcements at the end of the service, so I'm not going to unpack that any further. Instead, what I want to do is I want to circle back around and I want to end my sermon with that big question that we asked earlier in the sermon. Does something special really happen when we gather together on Sunday mornings? Does anything special really happen when we gather together on Sunday mornings? As I was thinking through this sermon and preparing this sermon earlier this week, I bumped into an article from the Washington Post that reminded me about of how Paul was writing about how God is making Christians into a household and into a temple. Here's one statistic from this article. The article said, teens with families who eat together bounce back from cyberbullying with 75% more ease. Guess the article's title. What do you think it is? Here's another quote from the article. A daily mealtime gathering together is like a seatbelt for traveling the pothole road of childhood in all its dangers. This is why the title of the article struck me so much, because the title of the article was this. It was, what is the single most important thing you can do for your kids? Eat together with them. God eats together with his family. God is a good father. God loves to gather his children together. God loves to be present with his children. And so God has sovereignly in his imagination creatively designed the, the gathering together of Christians to hold the special presence of God in a way that is unlike anything else in the world, unlike anywhere else in the world, and that makes it beautiful. He has designed the gathering together of Christians to be so unexplicably powerful that just gathering together builds a household. Can you hear the clicks right now of stones being built together? It builds a temple for the glory of God. Now, this Roman world that Paul was writing in, where so much of early Christianity took place in, they had a strong but sadly flawed vision of the household. It was a technical term in ancient times, household. Now, in the Roman world, at best, the Roman household included concepts of identity and sharing wealth, and there was a lot of good stuff. But at its ugliest, the Roman understanding of household sometimes included concepts of alienation and violence. Roman law... Um, vested husbands and fathers with absolute sovereignty over life and death over the members of his family. There was a literal historical court record from early Rome of a husband who beat his wife to death 
in his household because she had a drink of wine. And the Roman court report noted that his neighbors approved of this decision. This is why I'm telling you this context, because these are the types of people that Paul is writing to in Ephesians. They had this experience of their household. Some of you have had this experience in your household. These Gentile believers, they would have, they would have known what some of you know. They would have known what it was like to belong to a household where their identities were belittled by their mothers. They would have known what it was like to belong to a household where they had felt their, the hands of their dads laid on them with violent intentions. They would have known what it was like to think, I don't even belong in my own household. What place do I have in God's household? I don't know if you think that. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, I don't know if you think, I don't feel like I fit in my own household. There's no way I fit in God's household. And if that's you, God says to you in his word, I know your household has failed you, and I'm building you a new one. Amen? This is such good news. Jesus says it this way, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or to say it a different way, Jesus is saying, I will gather my people together, stone by stone, efficaciously and powerfully, and I will tear down the household of Satan. And I will tear down the household that has torn you down. I will destroy the world's household and I'll build a better household. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to carry the cross. And then I'm going to go die on the cross. And then I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm going to pick up that cross again. And I'm going to march over to Satan's household where you're trapped. And I'm going to use that cross like a sledgehammer to destroy Satan's house, brick by brick, stone by stone, I'm going to break it up. And once I destroy it into rubble, I'm coming after you. I'm calling you by name. I'm digging through the rubble, and I'm going to find you. And I know that you feel like, man, I, I am nobody's building material. Nobody who's building anything of value or worth would possibly pick me. And Jesus says, you're wrong. I'm going to find you. I'm going to pick you up. I know you're broken. I know that the world has graffitied all over you. I know sin has graffitied all over you. I'm going to use my own blood to wash you off, clean you off, and make you beautiful. And then stone by stone, I am going to build this temple. Stone by stone, I am going to build this church, and Satan will not prevail against me. Jesus will build his church, and we will gather together. Amen? What a beautiful truth, man. So, I don't know if you ever wonder, um, I don't know if any of this hits you in the gut. I don't know if any of you come on Sunday mornings and, and you think, man, what do I have to offer this church? Why am I even coming? Why am I even coming here on Sunday mornings? What could I possibly offer this church? And the answer is, <laughs> yourself. <laughs> Yourself, even if you like never preach a sermon, yourself, even if you like never lead a Sunday team, yourself, even, even if it's difficult for you, 
Like if you wonder on Sunday mornings, like what could I possibly bring to this church? The answer is yourself. No matter how big your giftings are, how small they are, the answer is yourself because Jesus has done a miraculous work for you and you are precious to us. The answer is yourself. Bring yourself to this local gathering because you're enough. Because of what Christ has accomplished for you, you're enough. And I guess that's, I guess that's part of the reason why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And that, that's just part of the reasons why gathering together on Sunday mornings and the Sunday gathering is such a, an important piece of what we do together as a church. So I hope, I hope our Sunday mornings bless you. They blessed me. So let's pray together.